back to Defenders Dialogue with Carr and Adam, the only podcast you'll find anywhere, as far as I can tell, uh, that's exclusively about the Defenders, Marvel's 1970s non-team. It's exclusively about the Defenders, except when we talk about other stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I'm Adam Phillips, president of untoldstoriesmarketing.com, and with me is... Car D'Angelo, owner and proprietor of Earth 2 Comic Shops in Sherman Oaks in Northridge, California. And fine comic shops they are. Oh, thank you. You were there yesterday. I was there yesterday. It was a good time. And may I say, first time ever, I had I walked into the shop and I was talking to you and somebody out of the blue said, you're that guy from the podcast. <laughs> that, was, that was cool. It was like being recognized. I, I'm internet famous. It's true. Imagine, imagine if you went to the Shang Chi premiere, you would have been like swamped by by a mob of fans, who listening intently. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you know anyone who went to that? I do know some people who posted about going. Yes. And people, I guess they. I mean, but I haven't heard much about the movie yet. It's like people are being very respectful. Maybe. There's a review of it up on AV Club if you want to see. Okay. It's mixed you know they're not super positive about anything which is kind of why i like them actually (laughs) i am going to see it a week from today yeah if i'm going to see it i usually don't will avoid reviews because all they're going to do is spoil stuff for me or even even if they're non-spoilery reviews you know someone will always say you know i won't tell you what the twist at the end but there's three of them and it's like well (laughs) i'm going to be now I'm going to be counting twists until the end of the movie, you know? Oh, my God. That's funny. Let's see. Today, we're on episode 13. And this one is called Forward Into the Past. I know why it's called yeah. that, but we'll talk about yes. it Yeah, exactly. Well, because I love the Firesign Theater. That's <laughs> a different story. And we're going to cover the first half of this epic tale because this, it, it's, it's, the stories are starting to stretch out more and more, and this one runs a total of five chapters, and I find four, we can barely get through four, if, you know, a four-chapter story. So, anyway, we begin with Giant Size Defenders number five. Oh, you know what I meant to mention? Sorry, I don't have any notes this time, except one, and it's not a very important one from last week's episode, that is. Because the only thing I found too worth mentioning is, I believe the movie we were trying to come up with is Old Boy. Old Boy, yes. Uh huh. I realized that late. I, I looked it up, and then I but I, then I forgot that we that I couldn't think of it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I usually keep uh, a list, of, a running list of notes and things on um, a sticky note on my desktop. Things, things that I, I couldn't remember. Is that that the list? Oh, let me assure you, I couldn't remember it either. <laughs> I um I mean I had to go look at IMDb and Spike Lee's you know movies he's uh, directed. But it was in relation to the um the Daredevil TV show. I mean this is very convoluted. Yes. Right it was the hallway the hallway fight. The hallway fight. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, so this is the this is starts with Giant Size Defenders number 5 and it's the final Giant Size Defenders. And then I thought I'd look and see what other giant size series went the most issues and just out of curiosity, you know, so giant size Avengers 
Conan, Defenders, and Man-Thing all went to five issues. But the absolute longest series, where Giant Size Fantastic Four and Giant Size Spider-Man, they went to six issues. And you could even give them an asterisk each because both of those, you know, there was a Fantastic Four story in Giant Size Superstars, I think it is. Right. And then there was another one called Giant Size Superheroes that was a Spider-Man Giant Size. So, you know, if you really wanted to call them seven issues, you could be forgiven for doing that. I would still say, if I remember my Giant Size Spider-Man correctly, you're saying Giant Size Spider-Man went to six? Yeah. Oh, that was the one with the that was the one with the team ups. That was the one with the team ups, and like almost all these giant size series, except Defenders, the last issue uh, was a reprint. So, right. Giant Size Spider Man Six was a reprint of some Spidey Human Torch stories. It was it was an earlier annual, I believe. Yes, and right. I think Avengers and maybe Conan, I think, win it for most new material because if we Recall Defenders, Giant Size Defenders number one actually was a wraparound story for reprints. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Wasn't it like they harkened back to remembering um, old encounters they had had? Oh, yeah. I think they, re- you know, there's, um, yeah, there's the sequence of um, Hulk is like an old J- Jack Lee, Jack Lee. Jack Lee and Stan <laughs> Kirby. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby <laughs> bit from uh from yeah. like issue three of the Hulk or something like that. Yeah, that's correct. But Avengers, I think I always feel Avengers was the one that, you know, Englehart, I think, well did the last four, I think. The first one was Roy Thomas, but really was embracing that concept of making it part of the the series. And I think Defenders for these last couple issues is doing that too, as we'll talk about now, because this issue. I'll give you a segue directly relates to the upcoming saga in the comics. Yes. Except that I feel compelled to go back and say that giant size Avengers number five was a reprint of annual number one. Oh, Sorry. it's the Scarlet Centurion one. Is that the story? I don't know that I've ever read it. I think it is. Yeah, it is. It's, I think that that's, if I recall you're and, and you're right, that was number five. That real early John Buscema job. And I think it's inked by Vince Galetta even. And it's sort of like, Old defense, old Avengers versus new Avengers, or something. Well, because Scarlet Centurion was another variation on Kang, possibly, and uh, and it was another, it was an early time travel story. For the, yeah, um, I sort of, I sort of knew that just from the Angleheart era, but I don't think I've ever read that original Avengers annual. And when they finally put out Avengers Epic Collection Volume Eight, I'll have the whole run of those, and then I'll probably, you know, through. Through the stuff I care about, which is up to about issue 150, and I'll probably do a read through of the whole thing. Anyway, Giant Size Defenders <laughs> number five <laughs> was cover dated July and uh, went on sale April 22nd, 1975. And it has some convoluted credits, which I'm just going to read. Uh, first of all, the cover is by Ron Wilson and uh, Al Milgram, although I think I detect. John Romita may have re-inked Valkyrie's face to make it prettier or something. I don't know. It looks a little John Romita-y to me. Oh, the um, the giant size cover. The giant size cover. Yeah, it's, it's got different things going on there. I agree. Yeah. So basically, it's the villain of this, Elar, 
standing on top of a building, holding Valkyrie in his right hand while she's swinging his her sword at him, and it doesn't seem to be doing much. Meanwhile, on the rooftop of the building, you see that uh, Nighthawk and Yandu are unconscious, and then on the right side of the cover, Doctor Strange and the Hulk and Charlie 27 and Vance Astro and um, Martin X are all leaping, flying, and whatever toward Elar, you know, to attack him. It's because, you know, Elar, one of the great villains of all time. Uh, One one of the great eel-based villains. Oh, definitely the best. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't get much better than this. So here's the credits, and they're so nutty, I'm just going to read them. (laughs) Which, by the way, this is like the third time the giant sizes have had a weird bunch of credits. You won't believe this, but were you going to say something? I'm sorry. I was going to, I was just going to say, I think, and I think you sort of theorize this like somebody goes, Oh gee, we forgot. We have a giant size due next week. (laughs) It's a little hard to believe that they're still in that situation after this many issues, but it sure feels like it when you read this, you won't believe this, but Steve Gerber, Jerry Conway, Roger Slifer, Len Wein, Chris Claremont, and Scott Edelman plotted this tale. Steve scripted it. Don Heck drew it. Mike Esposito inked it. Dave Hunt inked the backgrounds and lettered it. G. Rousseau, that's George to you, colored it. Len edited it. Coffee and moral support was provided for a price by the Lantern Coffee Shop on 53rd Street, and Carla made the meatloaf. Once you've read it, the story, not the meatloaf, you may wonder why. Answer, why not? <laughs> I think when they say why, they're it's kind of a... Why do we have to do these stupid giant sizes? <laughs> like them asking themselves. Yeah, I think I think that's probably true to a certain extent. I mean, I love I love that sense though. Again, that everybody you know, brought forward from the you know Stan Lee true believer kind of talking to the audience that it really became such an ingrained part that they're going to tell you we didn't know what to do. So five of us or six of us, how how many of it there was, went out yep. to dinner. You know, and 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 just so we could figure out how how do we come up with enough scenes to tell Don what to draw? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And this is a long story, by the way. It's over thirty pages. Most of these have been like twenty five. So, and there, and it's complicated. And I should, I think we could mention this is only the so the Guardians of the Galaxy are on the cover, and there's a big caption on the cover that says side by side with the guardians of the galaxy this is only the guardians of the galaxy's third appearance in comics at all there's you know the marvel superheroes 18 that introduced them in i guess like 1968 maybe 69 something like that and then uh there's a marvel two and one number five with the thing and the guardians of the galaxy which is a second half of a story that was the thing in captain america so they they don't show up in the or they do they show up in like the last panel of that issue four or anything or oh I'm looking now no they do not well yeah but the thing and Captain America are in the future and they're fighting uh, to save Earth and such and then they meet up with the the Guardians well I think what's interesting is Steve Gerber obviously had some desire. Yeah. To to use these characters because he really devoted a lot of uh, time to them, 
Yeah. Um, there were like a one-off. You know, there, I know a guy who does this podcast about one-shot wonders. <laughs> and Guardians of the Galaxy would almost fit that if not for Steve Gerber coming along and making them not so much a one-shot. But um, yeah, maybe. Although I am not a huge fan of that first story. So. Oh no! It's it, well, yeah. I mean, it really seems it was you know some sort of weird thing, you know. But it's it's not a very good issue, and you know what? For whatever, a lot of reasons, it's just very confusing. Now I want to do it though. But but what I think is interesting though is one-off kind of situation in as you say in 1969. I guess it's only two or three years later, and now we've seen how he also brought the you know, recreated the the weird wonder tale stories into the headmen. Right. Again, he clearly was this Marvel reader who knew enough to go, hey, I'm going to bring these characters back because eventually right. he also does a, a a series in Marvel feature, I believe. Yes. That's actually so the I'm reading this in a collection called Guardians of the Galaxy Tomorrow's Avengers, which oh, okay. has a bunch of those has has that whole run of um, Marvel, what is it? Marvel Presents that Gerber wrote most of. Oh, so it's so the trade paperback includes all the all the, stuff, the, yeah. the astonish. Um, well, not the, the. I was gonna say I was gonna say uh, astonishing tales because I know how disappointed you were when <laughs> when <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy bumped Deathlock for a month in Astonishing Tales. It was upsetting. It was very upsetting. <laughs> but presumably, I think that that time wise is contemporary with this, or maybe after after this story. So I think it probably was kind of like let's throw in Guardians of the Galaxy reprint because because we can because we're running them again. Well, look, it made a certain amount of sense because it was like Marvel didn't have that much in terms of reprint material available that took place in the future, like Deathlock did. So. Oh, I see. You're saying it also tied into, but they didn't have, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't do a one page framing sequence like they would often do of Deathlock no. going, hmm, I wonder if there is some ragtag group of guardians <laughs> <laughs> in the future. And yeah. then, you know, holy Toledo, Deathlock, buckle in your seatbelt because here comes a, 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 a Marvel classic from three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. Okay, so I'm with the story. The story. Let's let's talk about the story. The story is called Elar Moves in Mysterious Ways, and uh, it starts with several street thugs, all white guys. They look like you know, I don't know, extras from some bad movie. Anyway, they're all hanging around. I was gonna say they look like TV show casting on like you know. Yes, um, yes. You know, Adam Twelve. Hey, or Dragnet. Right. Hey, there's some there's some tough guys down the block. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're all hanging around on a street corner watching an older man, Milton Childs, closing his pawn shop for the evening. And they follow him as he's walking away. And he looks, this reminds me of something out of the pawnbroker or Marathon Man or something. Right, right. <laughs> they're following him and... He, they're getting closer, and he starts to run, and then they grab him and stop him and uh, say, eh, why don't you give me what you got in the bag? And they pull a knife on him and push him into an alleyway, and uh, we see overhead tiny little figures of three people in the sky, and then we kind of turn to see who they are. Doctor Strange, the Hulk, and Valkyrie riding Aragorn flying along, they don't even notice what's going on, which I thought was really funny. It's like completely disconnected. 
uh, for now. They, they, they're not flying down to help this guy or anything. They just happen to be going in the same direction. And they are ex- they're checking out an, a, a disturbance. There's some kind of glowing, crazy thing going on in the water in the harbor, they say. And a, a ferry boat is, happens to be heading toward it when suddenly the water explodes out into like a geyser and all these fish are landing in the, the ferry. So our three heroes land on the ferry to try to help the people who are being inundated with fish, I guess. And they're all dead, um, the fish. I was going to say, the people don't look dead to me, but okay. <laughs> yeah. The people are okay. They're running away. It's but the fish. The fish are dead. The Hulk and Valkyrie are trying to sort of throw them back overboard because somehow they are attacking the people. It's a little unclear what the threat is here other than ick. <laughs> so meanwhile, Doctor Strange <clears throat> is flying out over the water to see where what's going on here. There's some kind of temporal displacement, he says, that could be responsible for this craziness. But suddenly, he's... Go ahead. As I was saying, again, I, I never connected Doctor Strange as much with time travel, but it's interesting to see that it keeps temporal displacements in things, which were clearly a big part of his role in the Avengers movies and even in the upcoming Spider-Man movie. It's, it's interesting to see how often he's checking out time. I never thought of that as like a Doctor Strange thing, but it's interesting to, to see it come up over and over again. Yeah, it's true. And well, look, you know, he's a magic guy. So whatever's convenient to the plot is what he can do. That's true. <laughs> so anyway, he's flying along over the water pretty close <laughs> to the water, when suddenly a big gray hand reaches out of the water, grabs him, and pulls him down into the water. And he's astonished to see a large fish-like creature, sort of like, a, looks like a person, but it has a long fishy tail, and like, a, like an eel. And um, kind of a flappy thing on top of his head, like a crest. <laughs> right. And the thing is projecting its thoughts into to Dr. Strange so he can hear its thoughts, even though it's not talking and they're underwater anyway. It's a telepathic voice. And they're, the, the voice is talking about how, you know, their destiny is to create, you know, to conquer the world, conquer the universe, and we shall soar fearlessly among the stars and crush all the who oppose us and things. And It's a little odd because it just seems to be a fish guy who's thinking a lot of very big thoughts about empire and such. And then Valkyrie notices, hey, where'd Stephen Strange go? Then we cut back to the alleyway where these guys are roughing up our poor porn broker. And a shadowy figure appears in the entry to the alleyway who says, you know, I can't believe this is the sort of thing that happens in this world. Now get out of here and leave that guy alone. No, Nobody's going to attack anyone on my watch. The three thugs decide that they can't let Milton Childs talk and you know identify them, so they stab him. And then they turn to face this big guy who's in the alleyway, who you know they run it, they run at him and sort of bounce off. And then they're uncon, two of them are unconscious, and the third one is sort of holding the knife up. But he t- he tries to stab this this big figure, 
who is now revealed to be not just a shadowy figure, but a <laughs> a big guy with orange short hair and yellow pants and sort of crisscrossing bandolier and belt and things that are red. Why it's Charlie 27. Anyway, the knife doesn't do a damn thing to him because he is a big tough guy and from Jupiter? I can't remember. And Jupiter or Pluto, one of those. Yes, there, there's all the different I, colonies in the Guardians of the Galaxy mythology. Yeah, I, th I think he's from Jupiter, and I think uh, Martin X is from Pluto. There you go. I can't believe I, I can't believe I know that. But anyway, uh, Charlie, yeah, right. Charlie twenty seven knocks the a third guy out, picks up our pawnbroker friend, and walks away with him. Meanwhile, back to the... Well, I think, let me, I want to talk about this, because you said Go why ahead. that weird sequence at the beginning, and it may have just been, you know, Don Heck didn't pull it off as cleverly as the guys at the, the diner pitched it, but I'm guessing <laughs> the pitch was, hey, wouldn't it be funny if you see these guys about to attack this old man, man, they're not funny, but clever, and you yeah. see our superheroes flying above, and so you expect that they're going to swoop down and save the old man, but in fact, they keep uh, moving, and then our guest star shows up. Um, and I sort of yeah. imagine that was supposed to be the rhythm of the plotting. But I think you spend so time with those, so much time with those fishies, fishes and stuff, it doesn't immediately play that way. Yeah, it might have been more interesting right. to have ended a cutaway earlier where they, where the defenders fly overhead, and then cut to the shadowy figure in the alley, and then cut away creating the mystery and then cut away to the boat. But, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. we, we can, That's we can re-edit these old comics all we want, <laughs> you know, 40 yes. years later, <laughs> yeah, really. 50 years later. But now we do cut back to the scene in the Harbor where Stephen's uh, Stephen strange is sort of floating to the surface and Valkyrie grabs him and pulls him out of the drink. <laughs> as we say, Hulk's asking what's wrong with him, and she says, he keeps murmuring, Elar, Elar. And, and Hulk looks around and sees Elar himself sort of flying over the city. He's Even though he's gray and fishy, he's glowing with energy. And he, Hulk immediately goes like, that's got to be Elar. I know it. And Elar's spouting all these funny, like, platitudes. To the cities, the centers of civilization must be the first to fall. Yeah, it's like art of war type of stuff. <laughs> it really is. It's funny. I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. Um, Hulk and Valkyrie follow him. And then we cut to upstate New York, where Nighthawk is flying around. He's sort of doing the the thing that Hulk normally does, which is wandering around in nature to kind of get his head together. But this time it's him and he's flying, not just wandering. No where beans. He is, huh? No beans. He has no beans. No beans for him. Yeah. Anyway, he's rehashing all the rotten stuff he's been through lately, like his financial advisor being a, you know, funding a, a terrorist organization and um, his girlfriend getting maimed and blown up and sending his teammates off to fight a completely pointless fight with the Swadron Sinister. And, it just, you know, he's just like kind of miserable. <laughs> but then he hears some kind of explosion and he looks up and there's some some sort of aircraft that is, you know, looks like it's going to crash to Earth. And it does in the woods. So, he, of course, he has to go and see if there's any survivors. 
And meanwhile, in the town that he's above, which I guess is supposed to be Saugerties? Anyway, uh, there's crowds of people looking and pointing to the skies and all freaking out because of this spaceship um, that seems to be, you know, right in their neck of the woods, except for one young lad who is transfixed by it and very excited. Then we cut back to the Lincoln Tunnel. Oh, you didn't want to talk about uh, Verporton's Meat Market? Oh, I I forgot about that. (laughs) Verporton's Meat Market. Come on, you guys. That, you know what? They put stuff like that in so that, I mean, John Verporton was supposed to be a real terror. And they put stuff like that in so that they're, you know, he he looks more kindly on them them and the lateness. (laughs) That's what I think. See, we were thinking about you, John. Yeah, well, buddy, we we knew you you were gonna be upset. He he was the production manager, but also like an occasional inker, right? Yes, um, and a little bit of penciling too, I think. Maybe oh, okay. on some westerns. I saw a picture the other day from a 1972 convention that had a key, and you, so you could really see like it was a giant room full of people at tables. They were having like a banquet dinner, and you know they call him Big John Verporten for a reason, apparently. Because he's like, looks like a foot and a half taller than anyone else in the room, practically. And he all, not only that, but he, I mean, he was like big, heavy set, not fat really, but just like a large, large guy. Right. So he earned his, his uh, nickname. So then anyway, we're back, back to the Lincoln Tunnel where the toll booth guards are, one of them is goofing around like pointing his gun at his, at the next cop and going like, he's trying to show off and say like, what a great crime fighter he would be. If only they'd let me out of this stupid, you know, toll booth job. And the other cop is going like, okay, I'm impressed. Can you put the gun away? Come on. Then, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a pretty great little scene. This is one of those great scenes, even though these guys are not very important. Gerber brings them to life so beautifully. You know, we've got this one guy who's swinging his gun around like, you know, he's showing how what a tough guy he is. And the other guy is, like, very taken aback by this. I mean, it's really just well written. People start coming out of the tunnel on foot because something is going on in the tunnel. So the two cops are running into the tunnel to see what's going on. And all these abandoned cars. And suddenly the roof of the tunnel is leaking. Um, and we get a cutaway view of... What's happening is that Elar is directing hordes of fish or whatever you want to call them to smash into the tunnel. And so it's like slowly cracking and then breaking through. And then the the two cops are watch, watching this in horror. And the one who's was the sensible one who said, put away the gun, is still together. It has his head together enough to say, we have to get out of here. And the guy who was messing around with the gun and saying what a tough guy he was it cannot move. He's just horrified and like just completely bewildered by this crazy turn of events. So cop number one runs away. And me, then as he's running away, the three defenders are running into the tunnel and saying, uh, more stupid fish. <laughs> the Hulk is like, what's with the fish? Enough and with the, the fish raining. Yeah. It is kind of biblical, right? Isn't that like one of the biblical type of plagues? Not fish, but yeah. Oh. Frogs. Frogs. Oh, I could tell you stories anyway, <laughs> but I won't. Doctor Strange says, Hey Hulk, grab a car and smush it up into the hole to stop the leak in the tunnel. 
that works. Then we go back to Socrates, New York. There's a lot of back and forth in this story. We go back to Socrates, New York, and the young guy, young kid, I think he's supposed to be about 13, is running into his folks' house and telling them there was a, a UFO, a real one. And the parents are very, the dad in particular is not having it. He doesn't, he sends him to his room. And the mom's a little nicer about it, but you know, she too is just like, you got, you have to quit telling these ridiculous stories. He goes into his room and it's decorated with Captain America posters. And there's a Aurora model there. <laughs> it looks like one, right? Yeah. Well, it's a book. There's a bookend. See what the yeah. book is? I, oh, I know. The, I was about to say The Origins no. of Marvel Comics by Stan Lee. And, <laughs> and maybe some other guys. I don't know. Okay, but in the Marvel Universe, all, <laughs> the, all the introductions by Stan would, would have to be completely different. It would have to be, and then the Fantastic Four came to us and said, hey, do you want to do a comic? And, <laughs> and I turned to Jack, and we said, sure, we'll do a comic. Oh, my God. That's funny. I mean, that, I'm surprised nobody's thought about telling that story. Well, they've done that a few times. I mean, were they the Fantastic Four? No, I mean, four? Oh. they have done that sometimes, but it's always like, it's always already established that this is an ongoing comic that they're doing. Oh, but how did they start doing the comic? Yeah. Yes. That would be not, probably not that interesting story, but whatever. The kid thinks about Captain America and says, you know, what would Cap do? And so he decides to climb out the window and go find proof himself of this um, this downed spaceship. And, you know, too bad for him. He doesn't have a, a smartphone. He can just take pictures of it when he gets there. <laughs> Meanwhile, Nighthawk has found the spaceship. It looks sort of Star Trek-ish. It's got like the two extended arms with the engines on them it in does. the back and a big saucer in the front. And I believe it says somewhere in this book that Dave Cockrum designed all these characters who were about to meet all their costumes, new, new versions of the costumes. And he probably designed the spaceship too because I know he was a big Star Trek nut. Well, yeah, and he did that with the um, the Legion ship was like an inverted version, the you know, the 70s yeah. when he was doing the Legion. Right, right. And the ship says Captain America on the side. So that's the name of the ship. It's not Enterprise or whatever. Right. The ship has one of its engines are badly damaged. And the passengers start to get out. Why there's a man clad head to toe in silver and black alloy. Why it's Major Vance Astro, or so the caption tells us. <laughs> it's like Nighthawk is watching it. His face is actually in the captions, so you see his reaction. He's getting more and more open, gaping mouth. But the caption is telling him stuff, telling us stuff that Nighthawk cannot possibly know, like the names right. of the characters and where they came from. Right. Uh, then Yondu comes out second, and then the third one is Martin X. There it is, last survivor of Earth's outpost on Pluto. There are three of the Guardians of the Galaxies. Somehow the other guy got an early pass out of this situation, I guess. Well, he probably these guys looked like they were waking up from something. So Charlie probably wasn't as jarred by the crash. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, because he he was in the alley with the pawnbroker before they crashed. Oh, in the even more. So I don't know quite how. I'm he sure got they'll there. explain it. They they do. I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I just realized. Like I think they come back to this. 
one interesting thing about Vance Astro, Vance Astro, yeah. it says, in 1988, will become the first Earthman to the stars. It does say that. I guess they mean beyond, you know. Right. Oh, yeah, because we've been to the moon. I guess they're saying for the first like interstellar travel. Yeah. But still, they're projecting from the early 70s to the far-flung future of... 1988. 1988. Yeah, that's only 13 years after this comic came out. Yeah. It's not that long. So, back to Times Square in Manhattan, and Elar is standing on a movie marquee, sort of shooting power bolts and terror- terrorizing people and blasting cars and stuff. And Charlie 27, we, we catch up with 20, Charlie 27 at a hospital a few blocks away where he, he came to drop off the guy who got stabbed the police had some questions for him because he looks so odd. And so he goes smashing out a window and running away, sort of a long leaping run as the police are shooting at him because he didn't want to answer questions. It seems a little excessive, but whatever. Charlie 27 is figuring out like, what am I going to do? I got to hide myself. Oh, I know in a crowd that'll work. And of course the crowd is watching, uh, Elar attacking the, the people in Times Square. So, Hulk leaps down, lands on Elar, flattens him pretty good. And Elar still thinking at Hulk, planets will crumble, nebulae will blow away, white dwarfs, and, and finally Hulk says, will you shut up? <laughs> it's funny. Elar gets up again and starts to, like, attack Aragorn, of all things. And Valkyrie swings her sword at him, but because, of course, he's electrically charged, it shocks her and knocks her down. And Hulk is getting more and more annoyed by the, by this guy and hits him again. And Dr. Strange is trying to hold him back with some mystical force. And Charge 27 is watching all this going on from the crowd where he has hidden and going, wow, these guys are cool, basically. <laughs> then back to the spaceship where Nighthawk has now met all these costume characters and Martin X is explaining that you know, our radio's down and things are a mess, but I can, I can teleport you and Yondu to join Charlie whenever you want to. Oh, he's saying that to Vance Astro more or less. So they decide that, yes, that's a good idea. We'll send Martin X is going to send Nighthawk and the other two guardians of the galaxy to join Charlie 27. And just as that happens, they, they teleport away in tubes pretty close to what you would see on Star Trek. This is a very cool. Star Trek here, yeah. Very Star Trek, yes. Martin X turns around and there's that 13-year-old kid entering the spaceship and so they've got they've got to meet each other, but 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 we cut back to the Times Square again <laughs> where Yandu, Nighthawk and um, Vance Astro have all appeared while the three defenders are all struggling with Elar. And then, <laughs> forgetting that he was hiding, Charlie 27 suddenly goes, you Vance, Yandu, I'm over here. <laughs> I, I like that moment. So they are, they're all reunited. But meanwhile, everyone's distracted for the moment. All the heroes are distracted, rather. And Elar gets up and goes and flies off again. And Hulk is going to leap after him. Then Dr. Strange says, Nighthawk and Valkyrie, you go after the Hulk. And then he turns around and the Guardians of the Galaxy are gone. But he sort of feels like some one of the Guardians has something to do with this temporal displacement problem. Uh, Charlie leads 
Well, there's also another clue going on too that some of what Elar is saying is he's talking about we've he's acting like we've already conquered the Earthlings. Oh yeah, yeah. And 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 Doctor Strange says, "What is he talking about? We we haven't been conquered." That's true. It's like the tape in his head is just continuing forward, even yes. though the conquering has not not really happened. <laughs> Charlie brings Yandu and Vance back to the alleyway, <laughs> where the thing they were looking for seems to be. And there's a great caption here. While blocks away in the, the alley where this whole Verschluggener giant-sized mess began. Like <laughs> they really didn't like those giant sizes, did they? They did, and and I think they know just how well this issue's going. <laughs> they find the, the pawnbroker's briefcase. Vance blasts it with a psychokinetic blast, and inside it is a helmet. It's a bad dune helmet with mento programming tapes. But the tapes are empty. Blank! We've come all this way for nothing, says Charlie 27. Because he put it on immediately, even though clearly it can program your mind. <laughs> right. So Doctor Strange goes back to the water where this all where he first sort of became aware of this problem. And he manages this time, because there's no Elar like trying to attack him or anything. He finds Another helmet like that other one that um, that Charlie 27 just tried on for size. They're falling out of the sky like dead fish, these helmets. I know, and they're so goony looking. And then we come back to, oh, Elar's back in Central Park now and is attacking, a tr- like fighting with a tree and attacking a tree. And even the Hulk's going like, Elar, what's the matter with you? You know, you're, you're crazy. You can't you can't fight a tree. You can fight a tree, but tree can't do anything to you. And Elar's pounding away on the tree for something. And Doctor Strange shows up to join the other three defenders and shows them the helmet and says, "This thing seems to have given him the power and the basically thought patterns that he has." But um, we're going to mentally probe him to see. What happened? What kind of a brain he has behind that? And it turns out none. He has no brain. (laughs) Then the Guardians of the Galaxy, the three of them anyway, who are in the local area, show up in the same scene in uh, Central Park. And sort of Vance Astro sort of explains that, you know, the helmet's a playback device to deliver this kind of information to people who um, need programming. And it was in the water. There were electric eels down there. And one of them got mutated and, you know, powered up by this helmet. So there you go. Eel becomes Elar. Get it? Now it makes sense. See, and I was going through this whole thinking, thinking he was going to be a Badoon. And I was fooled. No, he was not. And Charlie 27 even says it's Badoon war propaganda. Ancient stuff, pre-Empire. <laughs> you know, it all sort of comes together. So it was from the first trilogy. Yeah, right. <laughs> of Badoon Wars. It does it does yeah, I know. It does sound a little Star Wars-ish when we get into this stuff. It's funny. So they decide to work together and combine their powers to depower Elar, but first they have to subdue him by be you know, there's a big fight scene where they're all fighting Elar, and then finally 
they've knocked him down and Valkyrie again is going to try to stab him with her sword but this time she feels sorry for him and Doctor Strange says no wait stop I'm just going to mystically take his powers away and make him back into an eel and then we're on the last page of the story where they're back in the Sanctum Sanctorum and Vance Astro is explaining how in the future 3007 AD a race called the Badoon will will conquer Earth and you know we need we need your help. Vance says our historical records show that the Badoon tried to conquer Earth once before, and the caption says that was in Silver Surfer number two, and they failed. But we don't know how or why. And Doctor Strange says I don't know nothing about that. But the funny thing to me is that of course it's the Silver Surfer. If the Silver Surfer had just put that in the Marvel Heroes newsletter years ago, <laughs> they would all know about it. You know, they had all, they'd have all the information. Yeah, I was gonna say, but he's kind of a loner then. Yeah, the Silver true. Surfer. But yeah, but the the newsletter. <laughs> I mean, and, and not to mention it, it's their former teammate. Like that could have just come up in conversation. That's a bigger thing. It's sort of like what a perfect opportunity to have brought Silver Surfer back into a storyline. I thought that too. It's funny because I was thinking it through. It's like I don't think Steve Gerber ever writes Silver Surfer in the Defenders or maybe anywhere else. They they have no idea that this had that had anything to do with the Silver Surfer, and so missed opportunity. And then the issue ends with a couple of panels of um, the thirteen year old talking to Martin X and saying, you know, the kid saying how he wants to be an astronaut himself one day. Because his name even sounds like astronaut. It's Astro. Vance Astro. It's actually Astrovic. Bum, bum, bum. There's your Twilight Zone twist ending. Yeah, for sure. So that's the end of that issue. Really kind of a mess. <laughs> so what, did you read the, um, the Thing, Guardians of the Galaxy issue, the Marvel 2-in-1? You mean like this week or ever? Well, re- recent, recently for research or anything? I did not. No, I'm curious if the ship was called um, because the ship is called the Captain America here, and I'm wondering if that happened in Um, in that issue. They don't show the ship. There's sort of a control room scene, but it's hard to tell if it's in the ship or something else. It doesn't seem to be. I think they get inspired by Captain America in this issue because it's Marvel 2-in-1, but it was continued from the previous issue, which was the thing teaming up with Captain America. Captain America is still in this issue. Right. So I think they're inspired by him. Um, although I guess they could have been inspired by him. Obviously, Vance Astro is already a big fan. Right. That, I was wondering if that's what I was wondering, if that was touched upon in that issue or not. It, it's No, it's not. And I certainly don't think it was in the previous thing. We go on to Defenders number 26, August cover date. And this went on sale May 20th, 1975. Very nice cover by Gil Kane and John Romita in which the Guardians of the Galaxy are running away from some ships that are sort of swooping down over Manhattan and shooting at them. And big heads of the Defenders watch from the sky. I love big heads watching from the sky covers. Yeah. And then you have little heads watching the big heads. That's true. This issue is called, the story is called Savage Time. And it's written by Steve Gerber, art by Savvy Sam and D. Coletta. And d- despite the fact that we're in the middle of this story with the Guardians of the Galaxy, we start out with a big scene 
a pretty great scene between Mr. and Mrs. Jack Norris. And they're having some difficulties with the relationship. So Jack has convinced Valkyrie to come out to the Pacific Palisades near Fort Lee, New Jersey, I believe, to talk about... Not, not the Pacific Palisades, the... Oh, excuse me, excuse me, the Palisades. The Jersey, New Jersey Palisades. Pacific Palisades, good Lord. Uh, you revealed <laughs> yourself as a as a as, as bi-coastal. I know, I know. No, these are the New Jersey Palisades. They are near Fort Lee, New Jersey, and Leonia, New Jersey, however. Yes. Anyway... So the story opens with them talking and Jack is saying, we owe it to ourselves, Barbara. We have to start, try living again. And she keeps, she's sort of saying, uh, I'm not Barbara. I'm Valkyrie, dude. Valkyrie. Valkyrie. I'm Valkyrie. Dude, I'm Valkyrie. And he, he, he just is not accepting this at all. And then she, you know, she keeps saying, you know, you, you have to let me go on with my life. My life is with the defenders. That's who I am. I'm a warrior, not your wife. And he kisses her, and she looks horrified. It's it's pretty well drawn here that, you know, you can see him. He's kissing her. She is looking horrified. And then he says, you, you got nothing out of that? And she says, no. And if you touch me again, I'm going to break your face. And then they kind of walk, you know, he she walks away from him. He's down on his knees going, ugh, we have to go back to that stupid Doctor Strange place? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's what we're saying. Because the Guardians of the Galaxy are there, and we have to go help to see what's going on. But suddenly an earthquake is um, threatening to tear down the whole cliffside. Bum, bum, bum. It's shocking. Jack falls off the cliff and then Valkyrie on an Aragorn swoops down and rescues him and pulls her him onto the horseback. And meanwhile, we cut to Nighthawk. I think at this point they're not, I think they're on Long Island now. The Writing Academy headquarters. The Writing Academy, yes. Yeah. And they're all sort of noticing that there are... The weather's going crazy. There are earthquakes where there shouldn't be earthquakes. And um, it's all due to this temporal displacement caused by our visitors. And then they sort of, this, this splash page, several pages into the story, sort of reintroduces all the Guardians of the Galaxy... Because, you know, you may not have read, read Giant Size Defenders number five. So we got to make it clear who these people are. So Vance Astro is sort of going, are you saying that because I exist in this era as a child, it's causing a time disruption? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. It could happen. It could, yeah, you know. And you know what? Who makes these chairs and tables that, like, the Avengers I... have them? Right, the Justice, the Justice League. League. It's the big round table, oh but the chairs all have that kind of bucket seat. That bucket seat oval design. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you, and I don't know. Except Kyle Richmond didn't spring for the like you know logos on the back, you know the the uh -huh. symbols of of the hero on the back of the chair like the Justice League. I think even the Avengers had those. Yeah, maybe he's not as rich as we think. No, he's, you know, well, yeah, after the whole Pennyworth situation. Yeah, I guess it's in the hero supply district. Right. You, know, you got your costume shops. You got your zap gun shops. You got your, you know, big honking furniture shop. Right. Headquarter meeting room furniture specialist. Yeah, exactly. That's hilarious. I mean, I don't know. 
So uh, Dr. Shane is explaining, and this struck me as does not make sense, that the temporal displacement problem is one thing. But then he says, no one may occupy two spatial points at the same time in eternity, yet you do. And he makes it, he's making it sound a little like physically, you know, it's like he's not, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense to me, but what I guess it doesn't matter because none of this really makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a, it's a plot device, literally and figuratively. Yes, yes. Nighthawk says, oh, man, we're now we're in trouble. Look at this. And there's a news report on TV that for some reason, you know, it's it's they, they found the news crews have found the downed spaceship and there are cameras and news reporters on the scene as well as military people. The ship opens up and Martin X is coming out with the kid and the soldiers are, are freaking out. They're going, you know, and they think he, the kid is a hostage of some kind. But the kid says, he's not an enemy. He's our friend. And Vance, watching this from the Defender's place, realizes that kid is me. And what the hell's going on? He's his. He's, he's having a momentary meltdown and Dr. Strange immediately takes action and zaps them all to that location uh, in an instant so they can kind of intercede between the, the army and um, Martin X and the kid. All these three defenders and the three missing members of the Guardians of the Galaxy are now on the scene. And then they start talking through what's going on and how you know, Martin X only needs a few hours to get the spaceship up and running again, but it can't launch from Earth. It, you know, it's designed for interstellar flight. And Doctor Strange says, "Oh, I'll take care of that. Don't worry. We'll get. I'll get. I'll get your ship off the ground." And then Kyle Richmond is watching Vance talking to Boy Vance, although you know they're not revealing that to the kid because that would be too much to explain. And he, Kyle's thinking, like, what kind of advice could I give myself if I met my myself at a younger age? And any, I think, would be good, frankly. And then they start telling the story of, you know, Vance starts telling young Vance the story of his world. And it's time for a long flash forward, I guess it is. <laughs> um, what did uh, back to the we forward to the past? Yes. <laughs> Forward into the past. Anyway, where he's he's basically explaining that all the pollution and all the stuff that we started really getting concerned about in the 1970s never got addressed or fixed or anything like that. So, and th this is a big thing at the time that you know, the aerosol cans of spray deodorant and whatever, the the aerosol that propelled stuff from the can out of the can um, was destroying the ozone layer. And so, I mean, that, that, that stuff doesn't really exist anymore. As far as I can tell, I think that's all gone away. Well, that was, that was a big deal at the time. And it was, yeah. And they got, I, I don't know how long it took to get rid of it, but yeah, they changed the, the format for that kind of, um, that kind the of spray balance. can. Yes. Yeah. They did change it. But in this version of the events of our world, 
they didn't do anything about it. And then people have all started getting skin cancer and having to get body parts um, amputated and replaced by bionic parts. So, you know, we were combining bionics, clearly a big deal in the 70s. Thank you, $6 million man. And, you know. But in terms of the use of the word bionic, this is preceding the $6 million man on television? I don't think so. I, th- I always think of that as a li- like more mid seventies. I mean, we're still in like nineteen seventy four here. This is seventy five. This is seven. Okay, yeah. And the Bionic. Okay, six million dollar man was nineteen seventy three. So okay, Bionic was was in in daily use at the time. Yes. Now, when did Martin Caden write the book? Oh, never mind. <laughs> there was a novel, I think, that preceded the TV show. Yeah. Well, the, it's it's based on the the not the TV show is based on the novel. Okay, yeah, I, w- I wasn't sure because I, re- I did read the novel at the time, but I wasn't ever sure if that was just a novelization of something from the TV show or something that inspired no, it. Was, I think it was called Cyborg, and I think... Oh, yeah, um, that's right. And one of those things, is, this is a side note if it makes it into the show, but here's a side note. Uh-huh. When I was working at Universal, one of the things I wanted to do was, because we had Universal had done the $6 million man TV show, yeah. And I think at the time, this was the 90s, there was even an article about, you know, rising star Matthew McConaughey used to check in at hotel rooms as Steve Austin. <laughs> so it was sort of like, it seemed so ripe for the picking to, A, remake this movie and uh, or remake it as a movie. Yeah. Because, you know, and B, um, you know, knowing that stars of a certain age were really, you know, a guy who was, 30 in the 90s was uh-huh. you know 10 years old when the show was on so so it was kind of like yeah. perfect casting opportunities and anyway one of the things that happened the project went through a lot of ups and downs and was hard to actually to get going but when they finally were trying to get around to making it what they discovered was they hadn't kept up the rights to the novel because in, th- in those days and you may know from your Hitchcock expertise about you know the separation of rights yeah. between a novel and a movie, um, mm-hmm. like Rear Window and such. Um, right. It wasn't automatic. They didn't make deals forever and ever and ever. So to keep to keep the rights to the TV show or to keep the rights to do another adaptation, they had lapsed the 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 rights to the novel and and so couldn't wow. really do without going back to Caden's estate. They couldn't um, yeah. do that. Right. Uh-huh. So that's my bionic story. That's a good story. I like it. I would <laughs> love to see Matthew McConaughey picking up a car with his one bionic arm. I would have loved that. <laughs> it would have been great. It would have been all right, all right, all right. Yes, it would have. Oh, my goodness. It certainly <laughs> would. I always thought that, I mean, I know we could talk about this stuff forever. I have not watched that show, you know, since the 70s, probably. But even in the 70s, I thought, how is that guy picking up a car with his one arm, but his completely regular flesh and bone spine? Right. Well, <laughs> well, that, those are those are the superhero things we buy into, right? Because yeah. even how does the Hulk or Superman pick up a building without it, yeah. without the rest of it dissolving? Because technically, if you pick up a building at one corner, it's not going to sustain its um, <laughs> structural integrity. Structural, it's structural integrity. That's the word I was going for. Yes. There you go. So we don't have yeah, to do a note on structural integrity next week. <laughs> we remembered it. So yes, yeah, so 
pulled that one out of somewhere. But but what's fun here is this flash forward is going to get us into more Marvel comics. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it is actually. Uh, look, we, we, let's finish up the the flash forward actually, and then come back. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so then a nuclear power plant explodes, rendering it says <laughs> he's like trying not to say the western half of Canada, but that's what he means. Right. Um, completely uninhabitable. Then a, a new sort of league of Na- confederation of nations is formed to try to get everything under control in terms of pollution and, and whatever. But then the Martians attack, and then um, a band of freedom fighters called, led by somebody called Kill Raven shows up and beats back the Martians until they just disappear. No one knows why. And then there's 500 years of a barbaric period. I mean, this is a lot of detail for, you know, a quick retelling. of. These yeah, things. and it's also kind of a throwaway way of creating a future Marvel universe. I mean, you know, at a similar time, yeah. DC was trying to connect, you know, OMAC with Commandy um, yeah, yeah. and things like that. And those were all, you know, Jack Kirby things. But Kill Raven and War of the Worlds was very much a, a kind of separate book. Yes, uh, that really had very little to you know. I don't think in that book they ever really referred to uh, the Marvel universe, but here it's sort of saying that that book grew out of some version of the Marvel universe. Yeah, right. Then there's sort of a futuristic feudal era, and the Serfs revolt, and then there's a second World Federation established, and then they start basically genetically modifying people so that they can colonize different planets. So. And this I found really interesting because I forgot about it. But they they show the people that they send to live on Mercury who have sort of fiery hair. And eventually in Marvel Presents, they're going to introduce a character from that world. Right. Nikki. Not yeah, not Marvel Presents, not Nikki. Marvel Feature. I said Marvel Feature earlier. I meant Marvel Presents. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then they show the Martin X people on Pluto and the Charlie 27 people on, uh, it doesn't say where, but I think it's Jupiter. And then they reach Yandu's people who are not based on, you know, humanity. They're just aliens, period. And then the guy they had sent into space in 1988 finally arrives where he was supposed to arrive in the year 3006, long after the place where he was going had already been colonized. So it was completely pointless for him to have made that journey in the first place. And he's miserable and you know, whatever. And then a race called the Badoon attacked all of humanity and started putting them in slave camps. And, you know, so several of these characters who we now know are the Guardians of the Galaxy band together to start fighting the Badoon. And we finally finish our flash forward. And man, he has laid, uh, Gerber has laid out a timeline that I think still stands today. I mean, this is really like what Marvel future history is supposed to look like, right? I suppose. I mean, again, obviously, I didn't really read a lot of the guard, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy, the contemporary Guardians of the Galaxy, and right. how that tie, if if any way, you know, ties in with the future Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not, but I don't know of any major discrepancies where they've you know avoided, except you know Bendis and some other and and and. Uh, Miller and other people played a lot with, you know, the future 
I mean, more immediate future type of stuff, though. You know, with you know, or, or old yeah. man Logan type of stuff, right? But that was still sort of in the. I guess that was probably just within, you know, not this far into the future. Although it does yeah. seem, Kill Raven, I think, happens pretty quickly, mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of, you know, in the seventies, you know, twenty years. Oh no, that was twenty seventy five. Okay, so yeah, the Marvel Universe, we're not any, we're not close to twenty seventy five yet. So yeah, so Kill Raven had a good yeah. hundred year stretch for them to, to still have Marvel superheroes around. You know what it reminds me of is. I think it was the very first episode of Futurama where Fry is frozen in that tube and all the stuff is happening behind him while he's like in the tube um, with aliens like, you know, destroying New York oh, yeah. and then they build it up again. It's, it's it's almost like that. It's just like very quickly just shows like, you man, you know, civilization flourishes, then is destroyed, then flourishes, then is destroyed. Oh, yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, no, and I realize, yeah, he keeps trying to not name specific things because he doesn't want to tell Vance Astro that he's talking about Earth. Yes. Anyway, we wrap up here, and grown-up Vance Astro realizes that he's upset boy Vance Astro, who is crying because it could, it seems so familiar. It could just happen like that on our, in my world, too. And adult Vance Astro says, it doesn't have to be like that. Vance says, can I go home now? And Dr. Shane sends him home and also erases his memory at the same time. Convenient. Right. And also playing with the idea of of multiverse. I mean, I don't know if Vance Astro is simply trying to be nice or if he really means it saying just because just because this happened doesn't mean it has to happen to you. Well, I just think he th- he's saying, as Dr. Shane says, that the future, only the past is is written in stone. The future can change. Right. So. Again, Doctor Strange, master of the multiverse. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. So now Valkyrie arrives on Aragorn with uh, Jack, and Kyle makes some snide remark, and Doctor Strange kind of says, "Will you quit it? You know, we we have to we have to get along with this guy. So please stop being mean to him." <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah. I wish they had shown this, but they don't because Charlie Twenty Seven says the Hulk and I hammered out the dents. In the hull of the ship with our fists. <laughs> uh, that would have been great to see. Martinix has gotten the life support system. She actually know. Sal Buscema drew it, and then Vince Coletta erased it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. So the defenders are all going to join the Guardians of the Galaxy to go into space and fight the Bad Doom. And Jack is tries to stop Valkyrie, and she grabs her by the arm, and he says, "She says, I'm, you know." I'm doing it. It's my choice. I'm going. And if you don't, if you touch me again, I'm going to clobber you. That's how she talks. Um, (laughs) So they're all in the spaceship. Now, Dr. Strange waves his hands mystically. And suddenly the spaceship is in orbit around earth rather than on earth. I don't know what happened to all those army men and reporters and things. They just went home, I guess, but they're in space now. And Vance Astro says, what about the time barrier? The Badoon are conquerors of the future, not today. And Dr. Shane says, oh, no, don't worry. I took care of that, too. We're in the future. Look, there's Badoon types on your view screen. And that's the end of the issue, except that there's a next issue blurb that says, the might of the defenders turned against the savage empire of the Badoon, but not before you meet the mysterious being known only as the Starhawk. Oh, man. 
I love this stuff. So Defenders number 27 went on sale June, June 17th, 1975. We're halfway through 1975. Wow. September cover date. Another cover by Gil Kane and John Romita. And I, this is one of those, why did they have to give away the punchline on the cover? But they did because um, the scene on the cover shows the Hulk holding an unconscious Valkyrie standing around in a swamp with a bunch of creepy, furry-looking, definitely female figures who look very savage trying to attack them. And Doctor Strange is sort of flying in from the back going, the Badoon women are far more savage than their men. Unless I strike swiftly, Hulk and Valkyrie are doomed. Doomed, I tell you. So, in case you were wondering, yes, these are female Badoons. And that's bad enough. <laughs> this issue is written by Steve Gerber, art by Sabi Sama and Vince Coletta once more. I don't think we have a lot more Vince Coletta, and I've been meaning to bring this up, but if you don't know, right around this time, Vince Coletta takes a staff job as art director at DC for a few years. So we get a lot less Vince Coletta inking Marvel titles. Right. He did, he started, but he did do a decent amount of, uh, or indecent amount, as you may say, <laughs> of stuff at DC at the time. Often oh, yeah. With, yeah. He inked a lot of people like, um, like Jose Delvo, people like that. Yes, and so. Kurt Swan. Yeah, and Kurt Swan. Don Heck. Yes, reunited. Steel with number the one. I uh, think so. Yeah. Steal the indestructible man. I remember I bought that comic and was like, meh. Didn't buy the issue too. <laughs> this issue is called Three Worlds to Conquer," and it opens with we're on a like a bad dune spaceship command deck where a commanding officer is yelling at his underling who said you know we're, we're gonna intercept that spacecraft that we see on our outer window it looks like it doesn't look like a view screen particularly this is the window and the superior officer is saying call them back call them back at once because they want to capture the ship and everyone who's in it the commanding officer says, I have a far more dramatic end in mind for them than death by molecular dispersion fire. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's really nothing else to tell at this point. <laughs> I wonder what, what the what the method of, of, uh, of what, what the more vile method is. <laughs> oh, there's some stuff coming, but okay. it's great. It's crazy. You know, anyway, we cut to inside the spaceship where Valkyrie, Vance, Astro, Yondu, and Hulk are about to be transported out in those transporter tubes, and Hulk doesn't like it. And you know, Doctor Strange is trying to calm him down. Hulk, Hulk's just basically a little uncomfortable. He's not like freaking out or anything. So they basically, you know, from outside the spaceship, you can see the rays of the teleport beams, but the Badoon sends sort of an intercept beam sending two of their beams in one direction and two in another direction. And we cut back into the ship and Martin X is going, I don't understand. Everything was working fine, but now they're gone. And Jack Norris leaps out of nowhere. He's a stowaway, apparently. Ta-da! I want to know what you've done with my wife. Where is she? Where's Barbara? This guy. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> Captain Bringdown here. Anyway, we find out where she is right away because she and Vance Astro are on a sort of a jungle-like world and 
knee deep in a swamp that's red. It's a red swamp. We were supposed to port down in New York, but we're not even on Earth, says uh, Vance. Vance and Val. Hmm. Anyway, she's not sure about it, but he says, look, there's two moons. When suddenly these Badoon females attack them. The captions play it like we don't know who these characters are or what they are, and we're going to have to find out. But they've already said who they are on the cover, so it's a little silly. Valkyrie's trying to fight them, and but as she does, a wave of nausea sweeps over her, and she's getting weaker and weaker the more she fights. She's getting sicker, and Vance has to use his sort of force beams to blast them off of him so he can help Valkyrie in the same way he blasts them. And she's really sick, so she has not put together yet that they're female. They have to get away from the swamp and, and get her a chance to um, rest up and feel better. When they look over, somebody say, says something, and it's another human figure glowing in the distance, waving in a friendly sort of manner. This figure says, come with me, and we'll give her aid. Then back in the spaceship, you know, Martin X is trying to figure out what's going on. Nobody can figure out what happened. And Jack Norris is having a real meltdown. He's going to attack Martin X with a wrench, <laughs> which won't do him much good. But, you know, he doesn't get a chance to find out because Dr. Strange stops it. I think it kind of proves that the Guardians were talking about Earth all along because it's a very Earth-style wrench. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That is nothing fancy about that. Nothing changes. It's not like your Battlestar Galactica. They even, you know, they have that little thing where, you know, the books don't have corners. You know, if you remember that from the, te the you know, the modern version of Battlestar Galactica. <clears throat> Never watched it. Oh, they had weirdly shaped books. So you knew you were in a different world yeah, because okay. the books weren't rectangle shaped. <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, I, I'm sure that was just a completely incidental thing. Then we cut to find to a new scene where we find out what happened to Yondu and Hulk. They are on what I will call Planet of the Drunks. <laughs> These people are just like, first of all, it looks a lot like the planet where Hulk and Doctor Strange went in Giant Size Defenders number three. Oh, um, yeah, that's why it looked familiar. I felt like this, I've seen this something similar before. Yeah, it's it's sort of medieval-ish. There are primitive buildings and uh, everyone's dressed in sort of. It kind of looks like the Berkeley Renaissance Fair. I was just going to say Renaissance Fair, exactly. Oh. Yeah. Um, we used to go to the one in upstate New York. Yondu was disgusted by by how everyone started dancing in the streets and having this, this Bacchanalian fest, and everyone's drunk off their asses. Um, and Yondu says to the nearest drunk person, hey, we need directions. Where can we, wh where are we, what's going on? And she says to him, I think it's a woman, says sort of like gobbledygook and of course uh oh it's a good it's a dude excuse me uh it's just sort of gobbledygook so they can't speak to each other and the hulk is very troubled by this it just seems like everything everything seems wrong and you know even though the people are drunk and partying they don't seem happy that's what hulk's getting out of this there's an overarching sense of sadness and death in the air and then she, they hear a scream. They go running to help. And some guys with swords are attacking a woman in the alleyway. And Yandu unleashes an arrow, whistles, just like in the movies. And the right. arrow goes everywhere 
everywhere, you know, it needs to to stop the the guys and they run off. Yeah, it's really. I mean, this is exactly like in the movie, right? It's great. So the the two heroes go to help the woman up off of the ground where they from where they rescued her. She slaps Yandu and runs off, and then a bunch of robots corner Hulk and Yandu in the alleyway, and Hulk is like, "Great, something to smash at last." He <laughs> demolishes them in a split second. They weren't very well made, I, I guess. Well, they, they looked another... like they were. They looked like they were designed by Mike Zakowski. Yeah, that's true. They've got a very kind of Star Ranger or Space Rover, Space Ranger, yeah. Star Rover. I can't remember. Or or Manhunter twenty Manhunter twenty seventy five. Sure, yes. there you go. There's another one of his. <laughs> oh, Star so, Hawkins. That's who I'm thinking of. Star, Star Hawkins. My nice. space detective. I, I wouldn't have minded a little more Mike Sikowski at Marvel in the 70s, but we didn't get much. Yeah. Anyway, Hulk destroys the robots, and then a, a much bigger robot shows up and says, you killed my babies, which is a very odd thing for the robot to say. And I just want to say, the, the giant robot is wearing uh-huh. the original Peter Quill Star-Lord helmet. Oh, it does look like that. Wow. I mean, that's I'm sure crazy. that's a just... <clears throat> It's a basic design, yeah. I'm sure, from the era, but that's yeah. what it looks like to me. That kind of like, I don't even know, that, that separation of sort of like eye shields kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, I think it's probably just completely coincidental. But oh, I'm sure it's a coincidence. But considering how Peter Quill winds up there, you know, Roy Thomas would write a whole epic seven part story about how this robot uh, is secretly related to Peter Quill, the original Star Lord. Peter Quill got his powers from discarded Badoon technology. There you go. I think we've just written it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the robot shoots them with some kind of stasis ray so they can't do anything. And then we come back to the spaceship where Martin X has rigged up a way for Doctor Strange to be wired directly into the spaceship's uh, computer systems so that it can, he can reach out across the entire universe, maybe, or at least the galaxy, to find the lost people. He's trying to figure out what happened to, because they got hijacked. Yes. Valkyrie and, uh, is with Martin X and Yondu and Hulk. They didn't go to where they were supposed to go. They were supposed to go to Earth. No, I know, but like, why is that affecting the Badoons here? Because like, it was there. Because he, he's touched it. Because they're... Guess. They they created the machine that hijacked them. That right. was the thing. So. Yeah, it doesn't quite make sense to me, but okay. That the, it sort of feeds back into the Badoon spaceship where there's an exactly. explosion, and then the the head Badoon says, "It's a new power source that could topple the entire Badoon Empire. We have to find it and destroy it immediately." I guess it wasn't such a direct thing. It was just the general sense of Doctor Strange is now powerful enough to explore the entire galaxy. Right. Causing havoc. Then we cut back to the swamp world. They literally call it a swamp world, where the glowing figure, still glowing, says to Vance, bring the female inside. And Vance is going, you know, how are you going to help? She's, you know, unconscious. You don't look like a doctor. And then the glowing figure says, I shall be her healer. I, who am the light. And now he's not glowing quite as much, but he basically 
transfers some some energy from himself to Valkyrie, and she sits up and looks a lot better. And we see now it's a a new hero, or at least a new figure, in a blue uniform with sort of a star belt and a helmet. And Vance says, who are you? And how did you do this? Are you a native of this planet? He's got a lot of questions. And the new guy says that he's not really going to answer this que- these questions. What's important here is you're in my debt now. Uh-oh. <laughs> sounds, sounds like a problem. Now we cut back to... Hulk and Yondu, who are being brought into a palace room where um, a king is sitting on a throne, or at least it looks like a king, and he's surrounded by women, and there's like wine and fruit and a bowl and things, and the the women are looking at Yondu and Hulk and saying, oh, they're horrible. Let's have them dismembered. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Yeah. And the robot who's bringing them in says, the king, or whoever he is, says, why are you bringing them here? And she, the robot says that they disrupted the death festival and they killed my babies. And the king sort of explains that, you know, we programmed the robot to have a maternal instinct over the littler robots. Sure. That sounds like an excellent idea, I guess. The two captives are so strange, one of them says, and the king or whoever he is says, why, they must be gifts from our allies, the Badoon. And in a way they are. The king says, take them to the studio. They'll be fun in the games. So there's a lot coming in that. There's a reality um, show coming. Story. A reality show. Exactly. Then we've cut back to the spaceship, Captain America, one last time in this issue, where Doctor Strange is still probing the galaxy to find where um, these people all have gone to. But suddenly there's an alarm that goes off, and they rush over to the door and open up and see that there are some Badoon and also some other figures who are standing there pointing guns at them. And that's the end of this issue and the end of what we're going to cover today because we still have two more chapters of this. It's a lot. But, um, yeah, that's the end for now. It's it's quite fascinating. I mean, I feel like... It is. I mean, I guess there probably must be a credit on the second Guardians of the Galaxy movie for um, Steve Gerber, even if it's only for the you know half mention of Starhawk or whatever, but uh-huh. I do feel that if you're just looking at the lineage of Guardians of the Galaxy, there would be no you know early 2000s Annihilation version of Guardians uh-huh. of the Galaxy if not for the work that was done here in the early to mid-70s making making them something that writers later would be nostalgic about because i don't think i don't think anybody would have come into it in you know again the early 2000s and gone oh let's let's take that one shot from 1969 or whatever and and right. and do something with it cuz it, it, yeah, there's so many things from that era that are just forgotten you know yeah yeah right like i don't think we're doing much with phantom eagle you know um, <laughs> or what's the one true. what's the famous one with that's in that that there's like a and someone tried to do something with it this will be one of the notes for next time but there's like a page and okay. it might even be in the guardians issue of marvel superheroes but there's a page yeah. going and coming next and there's this write-up of a character that never appeared oh, I don't and, know. and it was supposed to i guess be his own series and i but i can't remember was it like you mean at the end of the Marvel superheroes issue? 
at one there was there was a a promo in a Marvel superheroes issue of what was going to be in the next issue, and it like never happened. Oh, I don't know. I'll see if I can find it. I don't have. Yeah, it was one of those like I remember but, from like a comic book urban legends thing or something. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to be able to remember it now, but I mean, X Men '66, which was the last issue of the original series. There's a next issue caption that says very specific things that are going to happen that never happened. It never happened. So there, there's plenty of that going around. Now, didn't somebody, didn't John Byrne go back and do a series that literally picked up, you know, after yeah. Marvel? Did he do those things? I don't know specifically, but there, there's definitely been, like, there's a Spider-Man series that, you know, fills in stuff that could have happened between Amazing Fantasy 15 and Spider-Man number one. Oh, that was, was like yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was, that was Kurt Busiek's series. Yeah, that was. Over a year gap. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Untold Tales or whatever it is. I don't know about that, but maybe. All right. Well, anyway, I think we've covered this. It's a lot of fun. And we'll finish up next time with uh, the, the remaining two chapters of this, plus issue 30, which is a one-off. A very special issue. Oh, it's special, all right. It's going to be <laughs> great. I can't wait. All right. So until next time. Defenders dissemble. If you say so. <laughs> thanks for listening everyone we'll see you next time please uh leave us a review tell your friends subscribe do all those things that you do when you like a podcast appreciate it superhero